This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello and welcome to The Blank Podcast, the podcast where we talk to well-known people about their lives, their careers, and getting through any of those difficult moments along the way. I'm Giles Perry Phillips, and with me in his football shirt, walking wardrobe, Jim Daly. It, it looks a little bit, when I was putting the shirts up, it looked a little bit like sort of um, a, a sort of pop-up football shirt retro shop in Dalston. Well, I was you thinking I mean? you could like have a market stall, mate. <laughs> market store. I could do. I mean, obviously, the crucial factor being I don't want to sell any of these shirts. Um, but yeah, I do. I sort of didn't realize how many I had, but I've, yeah, I'll tweet, we'll, we'll tweet a photo actually from the blank Twitter and people can see. Well, I, I hold, hold on to a few of them because, um, when the apocalypse comes, you can use them to barter your way out of, out of trouble. <laughs> Please, sir, I really want... I need some food. Will you accept this Crystal Palace 1991 Zenith Data Systems remake shirt? Please, no, what will that get No, but I'll take your Island 2010 shirt that you've got there. <laughs> no, not the 2010 shirt. But I do need to eat, so okay. Have some gruel. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's a weird thing to think about, isn't it? Apocalypse. Well, no, you might have to at some point. Yeah, That's dark. True. That's a bit too dark, isn't it? Yeah. No, I'll be fine. We'll all be fine. fine. Everything's everything's grand. Talking of grand, we've got an amazing guest on this week. Is oh. I, I know, and the word legend gets banded around quite willy nilly these days. But this person is a true living legend. Absolutely. If you're a football fan or have watched football even once or twice over the past fifty years, you will know who John Watson is. And you will recognise the voice. And I think when you've worked in a career for, you said it was on the BBC for 47 years, that makes you a legend, of course, you know, through longevity. But mm. I think John's voice is just so recognisable. And it was amazing, like, 
hearing him talk on the podcast. It was yeah. like our own sort of private commentary. It was absolutely right at the start. He goes, John Watson here. And it was almost like it was <laughs> yeah. the start of the match, like the start of the match yeah. of the day. Yeah. Oh, I mean, so like you say, 47 years career at the BBC has done something like 2000 games. Yeah. And, and I mean, you even no, we, we talked to obviously as palace fans, we talked about his last game that he commentated on, which was at Sellers Park when we beat West Brom. And um, he knew the goal scorers. He knew the, yeah. the he yeah. obviously knew the score, and he's just got this this knowledge of yeah. all the games that he's been involved with, and obviously beyond that as well. But a tremendous career that he's had, and working his oh, way yeah. up from from local news, and then getting into radio, and has seen kind of every stage of the football evolution in the last sort of forty fifty years. I mean, I could have spoken to him four hours, but yeah. we were very conscious of taking up too much of his time, but. I mean, there were so many things we didn't even touch on. Some of his World Cup, you know, went to eight World Cups. Yeah. That must have been in- incredible. And some of the games he's done. Just the fact that his not, you could say, because I mentioned about Palace in the 70s or something, and he was and he was reeling off scores from big Palace games, but they get Burnley game and Swindlehurst. And yeah. it's just, yeah, absolutely mad when you think about the things he's seen and that knowledge as well. So yeah. it was wonderful to have that firsthand, but also some, some great stories about, you know, when things didn't go so right in the commentary box mm. and, and being hard on himself and, uh, yeah, just, and sort of dealing with, I guess, being a well-known voice in people's lives. So a really fascinating episode. Again, this is what's great about the, the themes we touch on within this podcast. We can talk to someone as consummate a professional as you get, you know, top of yeah. his game. And, um, they still have those doubts and, and, and anxieties about their performances. And that's, you know, it's, it, it's sort of, it's nice to hear those things, isn't it? When you're, you know, obviously I, I'm not have any broadcasting, you know, I amble through this um, journey of podcasting and, uh, you know, would like to have one tenth of uh, John's skill behind a microphone. But uh, it's, it's always comforting to hear that, you know, even the very best of yeah. the best have those, those moments where they, they doubt themselves. So yeah, yeah. it's great. It was really nice of John to be so honest about that, but yeah, fascinating conversation. And, uh, yeah, I think we should read some tweets, though, before we dive in. Absolutely, yes. Um, so I have a tweet here from uh, R. Dykes at Taffy Topaz. Great, great Twitter handle. And it's reply to our tweet last week about the uh, Christina Trevenian pod. And uh, Taffy, I'm going to call her Taffy, says, love, love, love this podcast. Thank you for an insightful and most enjoyable interview, Christina. Your delightful nature and engaging personality shines through. I love your quote. The softest pillow is a clear conscience. Best wishes for your upcoming September auction. Yeah. Well, it was, it was a lovely episode of Christine. Yeah, it was. I love Christine. She's great. And that is a lovely quote, actually, and one that I'm going to try and remember. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's lovely, isn't it? Nice imagery. Absolutely. I'd actually kind of forgotten that. You know, we do so many episodes and mm. talk to so many people. Sometimes it does take people tweeting about their favourite moments. You to go, oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And it sort of brings it back to life again. So that is why we do love getting your tweets, because they help us remember sort of lovely interviews that we've had. Yeah, it's because you're in the moment of doing it. You don't always reflect. You know, I mean, obviously yeah. we edit these, you and I edit these together. Um, and uh, yeah, and we don't always, you know, even in that stage, you don't always reflect on actual words, just making sure there's no blips in uh, audio or um yeah. there's too many ums and ahs and you knows uh, which i tend to do quite a lot of anyway <laughs> yes, uh, but it's all part of you know we keep this in it's all part of yeah, the blank process you know um <laughs> <laughs> well i've got a wonderful tweet here from hj hundu and it says 
Times are hard. Finding way through hard times can be challenging for you. You don't have to find your way alone. Please check out Blank Pod. And that's really lovely as well. So, yeah, another wonderful message from someone who's obviously finding Blank a comfort during these times. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. If, and if you are obviously enjoying the episodes, please do get in contact and let us know. We love getting your tweets. I'm going to do the Twitter handle in the first part of the pod, Charles. Why not? Just to mix it up a little bit. So if you are enjoying them, please do tweet us. Our Twitter handle is... At BlankPod. There we go. We're also on Instagram and Facebook, and it's the exact same handle. But uh, yeah, let us know. We love it. We love, do really love your correspondence. Um, speaking of correspondence, and that's, that's, a, that's a weak link. But anyway, terrible, um, speaking, it's terrible. Well, so, as a commentator, you're corresponding to... No, 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 really. no, no. terrible. Anyway, this is why I'm not one of the world's greatest commentators, and John Watson is one of the world's greatest commentators. Uh, this is the legendary football commentator, John Watson, on the Blank Podcast. Yes, I think when you've actually covered a game, it kind of sticks in your mind better than one that you may have watched on television or one that you've missed completely. So, yes, a lot of games that I've done come back to me very readily. Yes, I guess it's a good skill Cup to have. finals, World Cup finals, league games, FA Cup ties, everything really. You must be great at pub quizzes then. Well, I, I don't go on too many of those because I'm a bit nervous that if I get it wrong, <laughs> I'll be very much a target for my team, you know? <laughs> yeah, high expectations. <laughs> yeah. I, I wanted to ask you, like, what are your... Because Charles and I are both big Crystal Palace fans. Yeah, okay. Um, and there's a running joke on this, this podcast that most episodes I try and get a football reference into an episode somehow, even if we're interviewing someone with no interest in football. Obviously, this week, that won't be a problem at all. Um, but I was wondering what your memories were of Sellers Park down the years. Any sort of particular game? that stand out or, or memories of the ground in particular? Well, I go back to the 70s when uh, I think the first Palace manager who was in charge when I started commentating was Bert Ed. Oh, yes, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then Arthur Waite was the chairman and they named the stand after him. And I think the first time Palace really came to the forefront for me was when uh, Malcolm Allison was mm. the manager. Um, you know, it, it, was, it was that Terry Venables, Malcolm Allison. Uh, combination that got Palace up, I think it was in 79 when there were, was it 50-odd thousand yeah, there the huge. night they beat Burnley? Yeah, yeah. huge crowds. And, uh, of course, Malcolm then took over with his sombrero and all the rest <laughs> of it, and Palace got to the semi-finals of the FA Cup in 1976. Yeah. And I think I'd, I commentated on the semi-final, and I think you lost to Southampton. That's right, and they went on to win it, I think. And they went on to beat Manchester United in the final. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we've had. So, to... yeah, I go, I go back a long way. And of course, things have changed a lot. The grounds changed. I mean, there wasn't a Sainsbury's there then. Uh, the Holmesdale Road probably was as vociferous as it is now, but didn't attract the same uh, level of attention. And uh, it, really, the, the, the whole club has moved on since then. A succession of managers uh, brought perhaps into a little bit more of sanity by, by the chairmanship of Steve Paris, <laughs> who's tried to encourage investment and wants to do even more at the ground, really. Uh, but no, I, I was brought up in South London in Lewisham. Uh, so Crystal Palace wasn't all that far away, even when I was a boy. Oh, fantastic. I'm glad you said sanity, because there's, there's a lot of Crystal Palace fans who uh, aren't, don't necessarily agree with that. But I'm glad you've said that. But the Palace have always, always had this kind of 
air of flair about them. Like Alison in particular, my dad first started going to watch Palace in, in the mid-60s. Uh, so I remember Alison well. But I had my stag do at Selhurst a couple of years ago. We hired Selhurst and had a big game of football. And my dad was the manager of, of my team. And he turned up wearing a fedora <laughs> and a fancy jacket, just like Malcolm Allison. So, so well, you know, the Allison uh, influence is still alive and well. That's brilliant. I suppose, really, John Rogers would have been one of the heroes, would he, in the 60s and 70s? Absolutely, with his big handlebar moustache. Yeah. Well, he scored in that yeah, amazing 5-0 win against um, Manchester United. Manchester. Is, yeah. I remember that. I remember that game, yes. I think that was a game in which uh, Manchester United sacked the manager soon after that. Oh, didn't yeah. they? Oh, wow. Palace being influential. <laughs> uh, so, so I guess, so do you, do, you, do you have a soft spot for Palace then, I guess, if you sort of grew up near them as, as a kid? Well, I've always enjoyed it. I know people say it's the hardest ground in England to get to <laughs> yeah. uh, through the traffic, but uh, I had my route, Liam Court Road and all that, you know. Um, I, I found my way to Crystal Palace quite readily, and I... I enjoyed many games there. And, of course, in later years, uh, Charlton and Wimbledon both uh, yeah. both played at the, the, uh, at the ground, didn't they, at, yeah. uh, while they were looking for new accommodation? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, remember. I, saw some, I think when, when, the, when the BBC brought football back on television, this was after the period <clears throat> in, 19, uh, in uh, 1985 when football went through a very bad spell with the hooliganism and everything. And it actually got taken off the television. There wasn't a match of the day for the first half of the 85-86 season. And the first game back, it was because they did a deal with the FA for the FA Cup. And the first game back uh, was a third-round tie at uh, Selhurst Park between Charlton and West Ham. And it was the first time the viewers had seen Frank McAvenny uh, on the screen. And uh, West Ham won 1-0. Goal, I think, by Tony Cotty. Wow, I love the fact they've been waiting months for football and the first crown they get to see is Selhurst Park. I'm <laughs> sorry, sorry for that. It actually happened, yeah. <laughs> I remember being at an away game, Palace versus Wimbledon, or Wimbledon versus Palace, I guess, sat in the away end at Selhurst, looking in the Homesdale, seeing a Wimbledon fan sat in my season ticket seat, which was a very odd mm. thing to experience when you're used to sitting in that season. I, I just, I, I've forgotten how, how weird those years were when we ground shared, actually. It went on for quite yeah. a while. Yeah, well, it must have been frustrating and uh, probably a bit irritating to see somebody else in your yeah. in your normal perch <laughs> there. But uh, yeah, of course, Wimbledon, I suppose, would have been the home team when when they played Palace then. Yeah, they were. Anyway, John, I could talk to you about Crystal Palace <laughs> yeah. literally for the, for the entire podcast. But I do. Well, I've seen all the shirts behind you. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just want to make it make it really clear that I'm a big Crystal Palace fan. But uh, no, I, we will we will uh, move on to other subjects as well. So I'll pass on to Giles for the uh, for the more interesting uh, questions. Interesting enough, John. I was going to think because I know growing up, you you went to a, a school in Colf. Colford and it wasn't really football wasn't a big part of that school it wasn't really I guess it was maybe slightly frowned upon football is more of a rugby yes. kind of and cricket no you're, you're spot on there I mean I went to Colford school which was a Methodist boarding school really or one that's partly financed by the Methodist church my father was a Methodist preacher at the time in South London uh, Deptford and so on and um he wanted to send me away to school, and I got a scholarship at Colford, which was about four miles outside Bury St. Edmunds. But to my horror, when I got there, I realised that we would play one term of football in the preparatory school, and then when we moved to the main school, it would be rugby one term, hockey another. Right. <laughs> so I didn't, <laughs> although we could, and even when we picked up a couple of teams to play football on the 
on the grass outside the school, uh, we were frowned upon by the headmaster. So it, it wasn't the best uh, playing background for me. But, of course, on days off, when my father came to take me out, uh, he used to take me to Ipswich Town so I could get my football that way. Yeah, I was gonna, so, where, so where did your love of football come from then? Well, my dad, really. I mean, although he was a preacher on a Sunday, he was very much a football fan on a Saturday. And he took me around all the London grounds and even to some of the northern grounds when we were on holiday. Um, and so I got a fantastic football education, thanks to him. We didn't just go to one club, by the way, although we went a lot to Charlton when he was on one side of the river and then to Chelsea when he moved across. Um, he also took me to Arsenal, Tottenham, uh, Crystal Palace, Millwall, um, and many other grounds, by the way. So I got a real uh, breadth of, uh, of experience watching football um, with my dad. And that, that stuck with me. You know, I, I was one of those boys who kept the programs and stuck things in scrapbooks and that type of thing and collected cigarette cards. And uh, it stemmed from there, really. Yeah, I, do, I, do, I often think football is a bit, you said your dad's a preacher, a bit like a religion, to be honest, football, mm, I think, yeah. in terms of the people's commitment to it. You know, it's, it is very and much... our faith like in teams as well. <laughs> and, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes, it's. Uh, it, I, th I think um, it, he was quite vociferous when we were at the game. My dad. I mean, he didn't ex exactly preach to the people <laughs> around him, but he certainly he certainly had a view. And uh, I learned my football. My love of football came from him pr primarily. Yes. So it's. And did you have a particular team? Oh, sorry, John. Mm. Did you have a particular team then from all of those? Teams yes. Well, saw? he supported Derby County, which is strange because we didn't get a chance to go there very often. Um, and yet, my son. Uh, who's uh, now in his 30s, my son uh, also became a Derby County supporter, not necessarily because of my dad, but when I did a match at the baseball ground um, in the 80s, uh, I came back with a sponsor's gift, uh, a, a pencil case with, uh, I think it was Eastern Electricity on the side, but there was a, a motif of the Ram, the Derby mascot. Yeah. And my son, who was only about one and a half years old at the time and was crawling across the floor one not wasn't even walking um he latched onto this the ram and he became a derby county supporter <laughs> from that day on it's funny how these that is happen, amazing i was going to say well, at school were you were you quite academic was was academia something that interests you obviously you had a love of sports but you know we well, yeah, I mean, uh, between managing to get a paper to read the football results, so I had to do some work yeah. as well, as you would say. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't say I was academic. I got my O-levels, eight of them, uh, and then I did one term in the sixth form in which I started a school newspaper because mm. I wanted to be a journalist. And so I, I left Culford um, without doing my A-levels, and I came back to London and tried to get a job on a local paper. Yeah, I was. Yeah, so I was going to ask about sort of the the, the sort of forays into journalism because I often think sort of young lads that are into football basically want to be two things at school. You either want to be a footballer, and if you can't be a footballer, you want to be a football reporter because it's essentially the next best thing. Yeah, I think that's very fair. I think I wanted to be a journalist, and I, I uh, did my research into what you had to do to to start off in that profession. And of course, everybody told me, well, you've got to get a job on a local weekly newspaper. I mean, local radio hadn't really uh, taken off in those days. Um, and there was certainly no websites or anything mm. like that. Uh, so I practiced as hard as I could with my English language and writing essays and writing reports of school matches I'd watched, um, or even in some cases played a bit of cricket and that type of thing. And 
try to sort of get used to the idea of putting words on paper. And um, so when I left Colford, uh, although it took me a while to get onto a local paper, and I was working for a while in a second-hand bookshop uh, in, in the Epworth Press, it was called, in Epworth Street in the city, um, eventually, thanks to the advice of a man called Tom Goodall, who was the Methodist Church's press officer at the time, I found a job on the weekly paper, which proved to be my um, starting point, the Barnet Press in, in Hertfordshire, privately owned, um, superb training paper, and it was there that I learned the uh, tricks of the trade in local coverage of, uh, of events and things uh, for a local weekly newspaper. Was it was it like fates and stuff like that? Fates and absolutely. And stuff? In fact, funnily enough, a lot of the fates were on a Saturday afternoon, which meant I couldn't play <laughs> <to> football <laughs> anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I mean, local coverage was full of um, incidents. I mean, the the local cinema closed down and then got saved, and there was a footbridge built over a road where a boy had been seriously injured. Um, lo- council meetings, court cases, that type of thing. It was the full uh, local coverage that I, I got involved in. Today, many small business owners are busier than ever. Searching for and interviewing the right candidates can take time away from managing and growing a business. That's why LinkedIn Jobs has made it easier to get to the candidates worth interviewing faster. And it's free. I think LinkedIn's a fantastic platform, Jim. Have you got much experience of using it? Uh, I have to to get jobs, yes. I've not uh, posted for jobs because I am my own boss. Um, So the only employee I've ever had is Jim Daly. And uh, he's pretty great, I'll be totally honest. But to get jobs, yeah, I've had quite a few through it. It's very easy to use and a really great way of networking people in your industry. Yeah, like you say, as freelancers, it's vital, really, to have something like LinkedIn to be able to network and meet other people who are in similar industries to ours. And also for business-to-business stuff, it's excellent as well. Create a free job post in minutes on LinkedIn Jobs to reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network with over 30 million people in the UK. Focus on candidates with the skills and experience you need. Use screening questions to get your role in front of only the most qualified people. Then use the simple tools on LinkedIn Jobs to quickly filter and prioritise who you'd like to interview and hire. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates worth interviewing faster and you can post a job for free. Just visit linkedin.com slash blank. Again, that's linkedin.com slash blank to post a job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, it's come up numerous times on this podcast. I also started off my career in local news as well on, on, on a patch called Uckfield in East Sussex. And famously, that edition of the paper closed after I left. So I'll, I'll let you work out what sort of influence I had over the paper. <laughs> and the reason at the time... Yeah, the uh, readership numbers went down swiftly. <laughs> they plummeted, absolutely plummeted. Um, well, I did four years training at the Barnet Press and uh, eventually passed the NCTJ qualification which in those days was called the proficiency certificate and then when I'd done the four years and I was the area reporter for Potter's Bar which by now was the church where my father was preaching by partly by coincidence um, but when I'd done my four years training um, I'd started to cover Barnet in the Athenian League, Barnet Football Club who now of course play in, in the Premier League of the um, National League uh, some people still call it the conference, but they're, they're there. 
and they have been in the Football League, but when I was covering them, they were an amateur team in the Athenian ah. League, and their manager was a guy called Dexter Adams, a famous ex-amateur international who actually worked at his full-time job, was on the Daily Mirror in the advertising department, ah. and he went and got me some advice from one of the Daily Mirror football reporters, and they said, well, because Dexter had said he thought I'd had some promise as a football writer and reporter, and they said, well, tell him he's got to try and get a job on a on a provincial daily or evening paper. So I started the application process all over again, writing to all the papers, morning and evening papers in, in the country, and I got offered two jobs, one by the Nottingham Evening Post and one by the Sheffield Morning Telegraph. And the Morning Telegraph was a kind of quality paper, but it almost made itself into a, I suppose you'd say, a provincial version of The Guardian. It was, it was quite upmarket. And I got a job there on the sports desk, uh, which meant I had to do some subbing as well as some writing. Um, and that was the gateway, really, to what happened to me in my career, because while I was on the Sheffield Morning Telegraph, Radio Sheffield became one of the first six radio stations to be launched on an experimental basis, I have to say at the time, by the BBC. And my sports editor, the late David Jones, was asked by the local radio uh, controller, because they had no permanent staff to speak of, whether he could start a sports program. So what David did, he huh, sent the rest of us out to our usual uh, weekly beat, if you like, uh, whether we were covering Sheffield Wednesday, Sheffield United, Mansfield, Rotherham. He would send us out to do our newspaper report, but then he would say, well, on your way back, nip into the radio station and do a report over the air. And that was my first experience of broadcasting. And how was wow. that, John? Like, obviously going from being, you know, you're writing and you're, you're covering games through written word to going on and doing a, you know, a broadcast. Was it, was it quite intimidating? Well, I practiced a few times. I used to try and do commentaries when I was in the, when I was in the toilet <laughs> really? back okay. at home. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's, I, I always used to imagine myself trying, trying to, to be a, a commentator. And, and, and anyway, I, I found that my voice was quite suited to, to the microphone. Well, they must have thought so because they kept asking me to mm. do things. And um, somehow or other, I think probably, well, I think that broadcasting came more naturally to me than writing because we had a, some editor on the sports desk at the Sheffield Telegraph called Benny Hill, uh, not the comedian <laughs> I hasten to add, a, a hard, a hard-bitten Barnsley-based, um, uh, well, t t top top journalist in terms of running the sports desk, and um, uh, but he was he was a sort of tough Yorkshireman, and one day I'd written a report on a match, I think it was at Bramall Lane, and we had to hand our copy over on the desk on the night when we finished it, and he read it and he. He looked at me and peered over his glasses, which was his way of, do, of sort of looking at you when he wasn't very pleased. And he said, Motson, I've just read this. He said, I think, having listened to the radio on Saturday, he said, I think you better stick with broadcasting. <laughs> and, and, that, and that was the end of my career as a writer. Oh, I, I bet he got so much stick in the, on the sports desk. I mean, you would call yourself Benjamin Hill, wouldn't you, if you had that? Well, name. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the poor guy. Um, but it sounds like you're very much someone that was then up for the next challenge. You know, you're talking about you did this thing and then, and then you thought, I'll try this next thing. And I guess in that kind of world, being up for whatever, next and giving it a go it's kind of the way to progress i guess 
Well, I was only, what was I, in my early 20s then, so I suppose it was a case of sink or swim, you know, have a go and see if you can make something of yourself. And I was very, very lucky because after I'd been doing reports on Radio Sheffield for about a year, and I was still on the paper at the time, uh, the BBC in London were advertising in the UK Press Gazette, the trade magazine at the time, where you look for all the jobs. They were advertising for um, sports news assistants to come and work in what was then Radio 2. These were early days before Five Live. So I applied for a job thinking, well, it might put my name in people's minds for something in the future, yeah. not thinking I would get a job at the time. Came down for an interview um, and was sort of fairly sternly told, well, uh, <laughs> we'll keep you in mind for the future, but at the moment you haven't got enough experience. Mm. So I went back to Sheffield, a bit disappointed, mm. but nevertheless I'd, I'd made a, made a play place of myself in somebody's mind because a few weeks later i got a letter from from the bbc in london saying well we're now appointing two more people in this department sports news assistants would you like to reapply so i went through the whole process again and this time i got the job and started by reading the racing results oh okay that's interesting so they saw me as a voice yeah. i think more than as a producer uh, so they, there was a, there was only six minutes of sport. I always remember that that on on the radio in those days on Radio Two, six thirty two it was on, six thirty two to six thirty eight in the evening, <laughs> and two two of those six minutes were reading the racing results, and that was the job they gave me, until they found that I was quite competent at doing that, and then they started to to give me the opportunity to um, front some sports desks on the hour, that type of thing, and. And ultimately, on a Saturday, I got given a program called Sports Session, which came on after the famous five o'clock sports report, uh, and more of that in a moment. But um, at 6.30, they had a regional version of the day's events, and I was put in the chair for that and um, introduced to some famous people, of course, who uh, some of your listeners will probably remember, you know, the Brian Butlers, the Peter Joneses, mm -hmm. uh, Emrys Walters, W. Barrington Dolby, the back, the boxing uh, commentator, used to come in and do a football report on sports session. Um, and then after uh, doing that for a year or so, um, two things happened, really. First of all, um, they tried me on sports report, the five o'clock show, uh, just doing reports. And then just as they were about to sort of suggest maybe I might graduate into a presenter for sports report, which would have been the ultimate, I suddenly found myself sent out to do a couple of reports at games, and then they said, would you like to take a test commentary? Mm -hmm. So uh, that, that's when my world changed, really, because Des Lynham came in to sports report and started to be the front man that we all remember. Um, and I went off into, in, into the um, outside world and started to do uh, well, they gave me some test commentaries to start with. I remember going to the Amateur Cup final, and they felt I'd done okay. And then they sent me out on a Saturday afternoon uh, with the late Morris Edelston, because um, there were two commentators on, on, on the matches for uh, Radio 2 in those days. They had one guy did the first 20 minutes of the second half, and the other guy did the second. So I got sent out with Morris Edelston. My first radio commentary was December 1969, uh, Everton, uh, Everton versus Derby County, funnily enough, my son's team at Goodison Park. And uh, I was always overwhelmed when I met people. And Morris introduced me to Harry Catterick, I always remember, who was the formidable Everton manager of that time. And Alan Ball, 
who was playing yeah. in a pair of sponsored white yes, boots. Yeah. First time I saw of any sponsorship. And this, of course, was in the season that England were going to Mexico for the World Cup. And Alan Ball was a pivotal member of the team that had won the World Cup three years earlier. And he scored the winning goal that day. Everton won Derby County nil. So what was, I guess that's kind of a sliding doors moment then, isn't it? When they go to the yeah. test commentary. What was, what was that like? What were you feeling at that moment? Were you sort of nervous or excited to be trying this sort of new thing? Well, nervous and excited, I think, to be honest. And I always remember when I came back from Liverpool that day, I came on the train to Houston and I saw two boys in front of me who were discussing the game that, um, uh, that they'd been to that day. And I thought, well, golly, we do reach people with this radio and all the rest of it. And it turned out, believe it or not, that they were both blind oh. and that they'd listened to the radio commentary to keep up with the game. So I was I was particularly flattered by that Amazing. and thought, well, uh, radio certainly got its place and let give me some more, you know. That's amazing. That's an amazing story, John. I was just going to say as well, like huh. radio is such a different type of commentary to, to TV broadcast, isn't it? Because you're having to fill in a lot more gaps. Um, yeah, it's more just, dis- yeah, it, it's descriptive, mm. isn't it? You've got to say where the ball is, how many minutes have gone, which way they're kicking. It's, it's straight description on the radio. Whereas when I got to television, um, I remember the first television commentary I did, they kicked off and I thought, what do I say now? <laughs> yeah. Because obviously everybody could see the yeah. picture and see who got the ball. And all my radio commentary uh, style had to be thrown out the window. Wow. So did you have to sort of retrain on the job then, I guess? Well, I suppose I did really. Yes, I learned to talk a lot less. I learned to sort of not state the obvious. Um, I learned to let the picture tell the story where and when I could. Um, so it, it was a completely different technique, to be honest. Did you? I'm, I'm jumping forward a bit, so I'm sure we'll jump back again. But like when you're doing the sort of the big TV games and you know, England games, and there's millions of people watching, or I, and I guess radio as well. Do you sort of feel that pressure? Of, you know, people are sort of hanging on your words. And... To, be, to be honest, I never had time to think about that. I know that sounds an odd thing to say, but I was so um, preoccupied with yeah. calling the game, uh, identifying the players correctly, looking at what the referee was doing. Um, I, I, it never occurred to me until afterwards, uh, oh, 20 million people watched mm. that England semi-final or whatever. Uh, and it's probably a good thing it didn't, because I think that would have scared the life out of me. But um, no, I, I, I just I was in I had tunnel vision while I was commentating. That's I mean, that's, yeah, that's very useful. But did, did anything sort of go wrong in the early days in terms of your radio? Commentary? Oh, yes, I made mistakes. Um, you know, I, I misidentified players. I didn't spot it when the referee was was booking somebody. I mean, I, I missed things that probably at the corner of my eye in later years I would have seized upon. Um, and also, of course, sometimes I, I didn't quite get the tone of the game right. I mean, I, I always tried to be completely unbiased, but people used to come up to me and say, oh, we know you're an Arsenal <laughs> fan. Or we, you know, we, we, we knew when you, when you did Chelsea on Saturday that we're, we're where, your, where your sentiments lay. Uh, although, actually, of course, it was completely subconscious. But, yes, I was, I was, a, I was a, a commentator in the making, if you like, for the first five years. David Coleman was the main man then at, mm. at uh, Match of the Day, and Barry Davis was already there. So I was very much the third member of the team and learning my trade. Uh, what did you do in moments where you did get it, sort of get it wrong? What I mean, what, uh, what did you sort of well, do? Well, try to try to try to correct it as quickly as I could for a start, um, and then of course I was lucky in the early years because 
we were doing what was called edited highlights on Match of the Day. The games weren't mm. live. So if I'd, if I'd made a really horrendous error, I mean, the editor in, in videotape could probably mask it or try and uh-huh. leave it out if he possibly could. Um, so there was, there was a little bit of a, of a, of a, back, uh, of a backstage, uh, yeah. a backdrop um, way of, of correcting things, but um, a backstop moment, I suppose you'd call it. Yeah. But uh, um, I sound like B- Boris Johnson talking about <laughs> the backstop on the, <laughs> on, on, <laughs> on the Brexit. But no, I, I mean... Uh, I tried very hard to imagine, well, I had to imagine it was live, mm. because when a goal was scored, this is match of the day now in the 70s, Barry Davis was at one game, I was at the other, for example. When a goal was scored, we didn't get the action replay on our monitor screen, because oh, the only yeah. the, the only um, device the BBC had for replaying an incident was being used for live horse racing <laughs> or wherever. <laughs> so as the players went back to the centre, Barry and I had to rethink or well re- rework the goal in our own words as best we could trying to remember who'd made the cross uh, and naming the scorer obviously and then it wasn't until that early that evening that they got the machine back from racing and they put in the pictures uh, to tr- hopefully our words fitted but we'd done it l- blind and the first time I saw whether or not I'd done it correctly would be when match of the day went on the oh, air at man. 10 o'clock oh my word <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So that, that 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 was the case for a few years actually, until we got live football, and then of course they brought a replay machine out with us, and we got all the the gizmos and all the opportunity to see things again. You must have felt like you were living in the future when you did get a replay machine or a monitor. Well, yes, I mean, I suppose in many many ways the technology did move on while I was coming through as a commentator, and eventually, uh, when, when the BBC finally got round, of course, the cup final. Um, was the only live match in those mm, days, yeah. and when I did when I did the 1977 final between Manchester United and Liverpool, it was the first live match I'd ever done. Wow! And they threw me in on the FA Cup final. Wow! A big, <laughs> How did it go? <laughs> Not too badly. I had a bit of a, a bit of a struggle identifying the winning goal scorer when <laughs> um, uh, Lou Macari's shot went in off uh, Jimmy Greenoff's chest. But I got a lot of help that day from Jimmy Hill who was the first co-commentator I worked with. Um, And David Coleman gave me one bit of advice. He said, if you give, we only had one microphone then between the two of us. He said, if you give the microphone to Jimmy, he said, make sure there's an injury. He said, because he's going to talk forever (laughs) and you'll never get it back in time for the the game to resume. And it was funny because many years later, we were doing England versus Scotland at Wembley. And uh, I, there was a pause in the play, and, and I gave the microphone to Jimmy, and sure enough, he hung on to it. <laughs> and I realised that England were on the attack, and to my horror, Trevor Francis struck the ball in the back of the net. <laughs> and I realised Jimmy had done the... And Jimmy, of course, was full of it. Oh, it's a goal! And all that, you know, in, in his typical way. And then to my relief, to my relief, I looked at the pitch... And the linesman had his flag up for offside. <laughs> so, in fact, Jimmy, Jimmy Hill's commentary was never a goal. <laughs> I love this idea of you, like, outshot trying to wrestle the microphone off him. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oh, that's great. When did those kind of... Because I guess when you first started, um, John, it was just you commentating. When when did, was the sort of era of when you had sort of a co-commentator? Well, was that like... you're quite right. You're, you're quite right. I was doing... On the recorded matches on a Saturday, I did the whole match and the replay... Oh, rather when talked over the um, incidents again myself. But it was when live football came on 
really. I mean, the cup final, we had a co-commentator. Mm. England versus Scotland, yes, we, we had a co-commentator. And gradually, oh, at the World Cup, and that's when it really came into the fore. At the World Cup and at the European Championship finals, when we did lots of live games, we had co-commentators with Barry and myself mm. and David Coleman all the time. So did you, do you prefer having a live commentator? I guess it's something that just sort of happens. Sorry, well, it's a, it's a, well, I saw two ways of, of, of uh, taking advantage of that. First of all, they could add something that you hadn't had time to explain yeah. or even uh, bring to light something that you've missed. Uh, and secondly, it was a breath pause. Yeah. You know, if you'd been going at 100 miles mm. an hour with the microphone and you suddenly felt to yourself, well, I can hand it now to Mark Lawrenson or whoever, it, Trevor Brooking or whoever it is, and that would take the... Give me a chance to have a have a bit of a breather and, and get myself ready to pick up the commentary again. And I guess you're sort of working as a team, aren't you? I, I do know a couple of commentators. Very much so. A guy called Gary Taphouse, who's been doing it a long time. Really, really nice guy. But he sort of told me a long time ago he likes working with a co-commentator because you're you're sort of working as a little team then, and you're sort of not so on yeah. your own and lonely. Well, I've got a lot of time for Gary Taphouse because I remember that match at Crystal Palace uh, that I think you may have been at when I finished my. Uh, match of the day stint in 2018 yeah. Gary Taphouse who was also working that day um, gave me a little present a bottle of whiskey oh. I think it was and a bar of chocolate to say all the very best I was really kind of him but yes yeah, so the number of commentators proliferated with the amount of football that escalated on television which is an understatement I mean Sky doing matches many many matches every week and ultimately of course every game was televised in some form or another on a Saturday. Um, and, and I must just say that match of the day changed because when I started, the two matches that we picked, BBC covered, Barry on one say, me on the other, uh, they would be shown at about a length of something like 20 minutes in the mm, evening. Yeah. And we didn't even see the goals from the other games. The contract didn't allow it. Wow. So, <laughs> so um you know, now that we see every goal over and over again, it's changed completely. And also in those early days, it was stipulated by the Football League that the BBC had to show 14 matches from the old Division 2, never mind Division 1, which was then the, the what's now the Premier. Division 2, we had to show 14 matches. Seven of them had to be screened as the main match. Wow. And four games, four games from the old third division also had to be... Uh, script screen two of them had to be the main match so it was uh it, it was quite demo i say democratic it wasn't democratic if you wanted to see your favorite <laughs> no. team and they weren't on but the, the, fo the football league was trying to make sure that you know we couldn't go to say manchester united or arsenal every week that's mad it, can you imagine that now them saying you can't go and cover city or united it's just bizarre yeah, and I used to do football focus from the ground at lunchtime, and I had to be very sh uh, certain that I wasn't going to give away where I was <laughs> because that was where the game was going to be in the evening. <laughs> it is mad, Charles, isn't it, to think that like there, there were so many games that you just unless you were at the ground, you'll never see those goals. I remember yeah, Palace, no. Palace beat I think it was Sheffield United, and they may have been top flight, maybe the second division, five nil, and a guy called John Hughes scored a goal from distance. I remember it. He used to be called Yogi, John Yogi Hughes, I think they called him. And um, he, every time my dad tells me the story of that goal, that goal gets further out. So I think <laughs> it's probably about 25 yards out, but by now it's sort of way over the halfway line. But of course it was just yeah. not recorded. So there was, unless you were there, yeah. you just didn't, you never saw it. 
Yeah, Yogi Hughes, I remember him, yeah. Very distinctive character in the Palace team at that time. As was as were many men. I mean, I can run through players and you tell me when they played and who they <laughs> played, scored. David Swindlehurst oh, and people yeah, like yeah. that. You know, remember yeah. them? Yeah. Um, Steve Kember. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Came back. Came back multiple times as a player know, and manager. Know. Saved, saved he did, many yeah. Times, I, he? Yeah, I once played in a charity match with him, actually. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, in those days, you, you know, you could get to know the players. There wasn't the security around them that there is now. I could stand in the corridor as they walked through into the dressing room and stop and talk to them, uh, as I often did. Uh, nowadays, of course, players get off the coach and they've got headphones yeah. on listening to whatever it is, and they go straight into the dressing room. But uh, in those days, it was a lot more informal. And the managers, too, were a lot more accessible in mm. many ways. Did, that must have aided, you know, young reporters and young commentators having that access Oh, yes. I mean, I remember being, I said, I think earlier on, I was a bit overwhelmed when I first met Harry Catterick. Well, I was also intimidated when I first met Brian Clough. <laughs> yeah. and, and believe it or not, that was at Crystal Palace. Derby were playing there oh. in a game. It must have been about 1969 when Derby were on their way to big things under Cluffy then. Yeah. And uh, I had to interview him for Sports Report, um, the radio program, and he came into the, I'm going to see him now coming in his grey overcoat into the inter, into what was our little interview area. And I had the microphone ready, but the, the BBC was still reading the football results. And I was getting worried that he would he would leave without without me getting around to doing the interview. And I always remember he said, relax, just relax, young man. And um, it was the start of a, of a very good friendship I had with Brian Clough. I got some very good interview. Well, everybody got good interviews yeah. with Brian, but I mean... I was on the, uh, if you like, the interrogation mm. side of, of talking to him if, if there was a chance to get a word in. And he was absolutely marvellous. Yeah, I mean, there's some very yeah. famous interviews with him, with, with you, with him, that I've, you know, I've watched countless times on, on YouTube and things that, uh, Thank yeah, you. That, uh, yeah. yeah, where I can imagine it would be intimidating having to talk to him. <laughs> First impressions are everything. So if you're looking to make an impact with your online content, you need Issue. The easiest way to make your creative ideas come to life and share everything you want to be seen. Charles, have you used Issue before? I have, Jim. Yeah, there's a brilliant little magazine local to me called Seaford Scene, which I regularly look at online on Issue. You can see everything on there, every little page and detail. Do you know what? I've even appeared in it a couple of times. (gasps) Have you now? In what yeah. in what context? Well, if I've got something new coming out, like a new book or podcast, even even blanks been in there, so that's very exciting. Oh, fantastic! And I guess it would be very easy for people to read that uh, with issue online because you can uh, you can flick through very easily. It makes it very easy to read. Yeah, and it's it's high definition, so you can see our beautiful faces. <laughs> You're just such a celeb, aren't you, in Seaford? No. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Issue is the all-in-one platform to create and distribute beautiful digital content, from marketing materials to magazines to flipbooks and brochures and more. There's no need for endless scrolling through PDFs. Issue features your creative in an easy-to-view way on every device. Make it once and distribute it everywhere without reformatting. Your content is already optimised for engagement and ready to share with the beautiful people of Seaford. (laughs) Issue also works seamlessly with tools, you already use, like Canva, Dropbox, and InDesign. Issue helps creators, marketeers, 
designers, and really anyone who wants to make content that stands out. You can start using Issue for free. They also offer premium features that give you a more customized experience. Get started with Issue today for free. Or if you sign up for a premium account, you will get 50% off when you go to issue.com slash podcast and use the promo code blank. That's I-S-S-U-U dot com slash podcast and use the promo code blank at checkout for your free account or 50% off your premium account. That's issue.com slash podcast with the promo code blank. Well, I was getting on fine at that stage. I mean, I went to my first World Cup in 1974. Uh, I went to Argentina in 78 with the tick attack, you know, the, yeah. all that stuff that came out the sky. And Aussie RD Les then came to Tottenham. Um, that was uh, that was fantastic. Um, and then I went, well, I, went, I carried on then. I, I, I By now, I'd established myself, I suppose you could... Uh, say loosely, I'm not sure whether Barry Davis would agree with this, but <laughs> I think I'd establish myself more or less as the as the number one football commentator at the BBC. Mm. So I was doing England games at things like the World Cup and the European Championships, and I, my career had taken off really. And th- that that's what it, that's where I kind of not say finished up, but I mean that that's what I was doing week in week out. Wasn't wasn't there a sort of perceived rivalry with you and Barry Davis? Oh, huge. Time? Oh, absolutely huge. I mean, and, and, I, and I think that was probably uh, one of the de- downsides as well to, to, to what happened because uh, I'd done several World Cup finals, a lot of FA Cup finals, and everybody kept saying, and especially Barry, and I understand that completely, when's Barry going to get a go? When's it going to be Barry's turn? And eventually I knew my luck was going to run out. So uh, after doing Italia 90, when I just about scraped the final, um, England having, and of course I commentated on the Waddle and Pierce penalties yeah, yeah. in Turin in the semi-final. Uh, after that World Cup, the the the, the, the um, pressure grew for Barry to get, uh, and and when they and in 1994 um, they decided that Barry should do the World Cup final from the United States, and that's my first real uh, body blow, I suppose, that I had to get over and accept. Uh, which I did, although he then went on to get the FA Cup final in the following two years. So uh, I, I was almost, I almost used the word demoted there, but I was yeah. almost reduced to doing uh, the second role and, and Barry had taken over. But then uh, in 1997, uh, ITV came in and Brian Moore was about to retire and ITV offered, my, offered me his job switching channels. Oh. And when the BBC got to hear of this, they reacted quite quickly and lo and behold i got the cup final back in 1997 when uh, i think chelsea beat middlesbrough di matteo after mm. 20 seconds whatever it was 40 40 uh, 44 or 5 was it it's certainly the quickest yeah. cup final goal because i i remember saying that because i had i had it on my pad all those years <laughs> waiting for the time waiting for it to happen in the first minute <laughs> uh, yeah i could still see it smash in off the bar yeah. actually it did you're quite right yeah it must yeah. be it must be weird having you've got these great colleagues you respect and in and but then you are kind of you are kind of vying for the same position it's almost sort of a weird position to be in it was as you said using the quite correct correct the words you very competitive and each each commentary you did uh, you found yourself analyzing it wondering whether you'd made a mistake wondering how how it had been received and all the rest of it yeah and you know you you knew you had to keep up that standard to stay to stay where you were um so it was quite testing in a way and um I suppose I, 
ultimately I got used to the idea of putting myself under that kind of strain. Mm. Uh, it wasn't very good for my wife and family probably, but um, I, I managed to keep my head above water, so to speak. I was going to say, John, uh, obviously, you, you, you t- funny enough, you talked about that that semi-final with England and, and the, the penalty misses. Yeah. And, you know, often you're kind of, um, you're commentating on, on kind of national tragedies <laughs> to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, well, uh, yeah. And, they, and, and, and yeah. how do you, how do you find dealing with that? Cause obviously you're having to speak almost to the nation in those moments. Yeah. But again, you see the concentration factor came to my aid really, because I remember that semi-final in Turin and we didn't have on the screen, that little chart they put up now where they put a a, a, a green tick when somebody mm. scores the penalty and, yeah. and you can see it develop, the penalty shootouts there in front of you on the screen. We didn't have any of that. And I remember having a piece of paper uh, and a pen and, and trying to keep track of where we were. I mean, and, and I, the, what I was dreading was saying England are into the final and realising that, of course, the competition wasn't yeah, over yeah. or England are out of the World Cup and they, they still had another... But ultimately, of course, I managed to get the, the scoring sequence right. and Germany didn't even have to take their fifth penalty, did they? So um, that was probably the most nerve-wracking I, I, I ever had. And I suppose it was only afterwards that I realised the precipice that I was on and, and what that meant to all the people I was talking to. And, and then your words in those moments are then stuck in time, aren't they? Forever. Yes. And in- England are out of the World Cup. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, it's well, they, they weren't out completely. They they had to play a third place mm. match, but I mean, effectively, they weren't going to be in the final, and that was the the, the game of Gaza's tears. Of yes, course. yeah, yeah. I mean, third place games are completely pointless. Let's be honest. Um, not a fan of those at all. Um, no, no. Um, especially if you've just gone out in the semi final. Last thing you want to do in <laughs> the nice. game, you probably, you probably just want to go home and just try to forget about the whole thing. No, I think that was Peter Shorten's one hundred and twenty fifth cap, wasn't it? The third yeah. place. Was that the last time yes. he ever played? Yeah. Because Chris yeah. Woods was. Is it Chris Woods? was going to play but then because it was 125th i think shorten played i don't i may have got that wrong but i think it's something like that well what they what what i have uh, corrected over the years in people's minds is that when we had the penalty shootout and peter shorten didn't really get near any of the german penalties and uh, somebody said oh bobby robson had been warming up the res- the reserve goalkeeper and he might have made it as goal- as managers have since mm. then he might have brought the reserve goalkeeper on and for a while a lot of people thought it was dave besson who was um who, who was in the squad in the 22 but i spoke to dave besson about it quite recently and he said no i was sitting up in the stand fully dressed he said i wasn't even on the bench <laughs> and i think it, i think you were right i think it w- would have been chris yeah. woods yeah um I think there's a, there's a story, isn't there? I think on the coach back, Gaza said to Peter Shilton, "Any chance of any chance of saving one of those shilts?" Which you can you can imagine yeah. Gaza saying that in the only yeah. play you can imagine. I think would have said that after that match. One or two of them might have thought it. But <laughs> yeah. he, he'd been a wonderful goalkeeper, and it was it was splitting hairs because the yeah. Germans knew better than anybody how to yeah, take the penalty. Absolutely, they were, they, they were ruthless. Obviously, you've had to commentate on on real life tragedies, and I know. Um, Hillsborough yeah. was, was something that you had to commentate on and that must have been a, a very stark afternoon for you in, in, in your job, you know, when you're there to, to, to commentate on, a, on a, you know, what would be an exciting football match, but then it, it, it changes very rapidly into something far worse. Yeah, that was a very testing time. Um, and from where I was sitting, of course, uh, um, I, I wasn't able to get over the whole um impact of the tragedy because i couldn't see 
quite what how bad things were and of course it was only when i came off the air and went downstairs and other people took over uh, that i realized what i'd uh, what i'd been what i'd witnessed and uh, uh, did take a lot of getting over and a friend of mine lost his son um out hillsborough which um was a was a friend which a friendship which um endured for a long time um with his father um who was at the game with him i mean there were so many stories of personal tragedy which obviously because i wasn't i was involved in the sense that i had to cover the what i could of, of, of what was going on but uh i, I don't i don't uh, really enjoy uh, having to talk about it too much now because i mean every, it, a lot of it is just people's emotions and you have to be very careful of course of absolutely course. yeah you do absolutely you were talking about sort of making those notes there uh, penalty shootout notes i'm just i'm wondering sort of because you, you see on twitter sometimes commentators notes doing the rounds and, and they're they're extortionate huge notes before games and stuff. How, yeah. how did yours develop in that kind of way because i'm guessing they... very much pen very much pen and ink not not like today when they can just run off streams of stuff from the club website on a computer <laughs> I had felt-tip pens, and I used to put the names of the two teams side by side, but in different colours, and then a little bit of a, a biro um, addenda on each player with something about him. And then on the back, I used to do all the sequences and when they lost, lost, and all that kind of thing. My commentary charts, as I called them, became quite popular. Uh, when the game was over and I had no more need to keep them, I used to have them on standby to send to charities and oh. things like that. So um, the commentary charts and the sheepskin coat became my trademark, yeah, really. <laughs> I re- I, you can probably guess I've got a note about the sheepskin coat. I definitely, definitely want to uh, want to ask you about that because that that famous photo of you in the snow is that, that is that yes. at, at Adams Park in Wickham? Yeah, that's at Wickham. Yeah, uh, December nineteen ninety. I think they were due to play Peterborough in the FA Cup, and uh, when I left home, not very far away, actually. Uh, from mm. the Thames Valley. I was only about 40 minutes drive. The sun was shining and then suddenly a freak storm descended on, on, on the area around uh, Wickham and the game was postponed and I had to do a report to Grandstand in Football Focus explaining why the match wasn't going to take place and why we weren't talking to Martin O'Neill, who was the Wickham manager. And what I'd gone to do was an interview with him, really. So I was standing there with my cap on, looking very uh, bedraggled, is that the right word? <laughs> and I, I had the sheepskin coat around me. And um, while I was there, quite apart from the BBC coverage, there was a photographer called Stuart Clark, um, who made his name making taking pictures of unusual scenes at football yeah. grounds. You're nodding as if you've I've heard I've seen his good. pictures through mm. the round on Twitter. Well, I'm yeah. glad you have. Yeah. And he took this picture of me in the snow. And you know something? It, it became my... I hate to use the word iconic because it wasn't really about me, but because I looked so pathetic <laughs> standing where I was, everybody used to say to me, oh, I saw you in the snow body and, and, the, and the sheepskin coat became a, a kind of a joke among people. And um, I had seven or eight over the years. They, they didn't all last forever. I had them made to measure by all sorts of people um, who, who had the skins and could put a full-length sheepskin together for me because you couldn't buy a full-length coat in the uh, London superstores. You could only get a jacket. So the full-length sheepskin, um, which kept me me very warm, by the way, because it covered my knees when I was sitting up on the commentary gantry, uh, wherever it may be, and I needed it because I remember before I ever got onto having a coat like that, I was in the snow at South End one night, and they had to... 
uh, covered me with a tarpaulin <laughs> to, to keep the snow off me. That, the, the cup replay against Liverpool, I remember. So, so it, there are quite a few... Uh, from the commentary box, there are quite a few uh, tales like that. I reckon there must have been so many young football wannabe commentators who probably wore sheepskin coats as a result of uh, you. Well, I don't know about <laughs> that, but I, 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 I certainly uh, got a lot of letters from people who wanted to know how to get into journalism and television and things like that. And I, I always made a point of trying to reply and tell them how it happened to me. But, of course, it's all changed now because... Uh, not only is local radio mushroomed, but I mean there are so many other outlets now where people with their um, well, with their technology can can practice and and try their hand at being commentators. But uh, I was very lucky in that I got in on the ground floor, wasn't I? Mm, you were. But no, no one will wear a sheepskin coat like you, John, ever again. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, John, actually talking about you know how commentating is now. Um, and, you know, in this sort of fast-paced world that we live in. Um, do you think it's a harder role now than it was perhaps before? I mean, you know, it, just because also there's that added scrutiny well, as well with social media and I, stuff. I, I think two sides to that. I think it, it's an easier role because there's more technology to support you. There are more replays yeah, to confirm sure. what you thought you should have said or did say or whatever. Um and of course, the, 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 there's more co-commentators to help you out when the, when 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 you need it. Um, I think that the, the difficult bit now, and this is the bit that I'm glad I'm not still doing it anymore, um, is the shirt numbers, which in my day were always one to eleven. Yeah. Weren't they? Yeah. Oh, well, number twelve would occasionally come on when there was, there was only one sub when I started, you know, and that was through injury. Mm. Uh, so now numbers go up to 40-something, 50-something. I'd find that difficult. And also the number of substitutes, yeah. because dealing with one player coming on and one going off was okay in the early 70s. But now you've got in up to nine yeah. substitutes on the bench, um, any three of whom could come mm. on. And I always found in my later years, uh, getting working out who'd come on was bad enough, but trying to remember who'd gone off was even harder. <laughs> and, and I, I found that juxtaposition quite, quite tricky. They, um, yeah, because I, I imagine when you're a commentator, people, I guess, like being a goalkeeper, people remember your errors maybe more than yeah. the things you've done. Like I always think, of course, of you know Brian Moore and the classic "Quickly, Kevin, will he score?" which has gone down in sort of you know folklore. But I, I just, I wonder if like you actually people don't remember. The good moments or the things we've had a normal game, they just remember the moments where you got something wrong. Well, I guess perhaps they do. I mean, I, I made a mistake uh, in, in a European game over in Sweden once when Blackburn Rovers were playing um, in, in in a European match when they were champions and uh, a player got sent off and I never saw him go off because I was too busy watching <laughs> the replay of the tackle. Um, and it took a long time. And when I put my eyes back on the field, I realised the opposition only had 10 men. Uh, but I covered that up fairly quickly. But it was one where I thought to myself, golly, that is, a, that is the ultimate, or for me, it was the ultimate mistake up to that time that I'd actually failed to see a player sent off by the referee. So yes, there were some hairy moments, definitely. Have you ever had any moments where you've gone blank to bring it you know bring it on theme of the podcast where you haven't known what to say or the words have got stuck in your throat and, and you've sort of been dead air i guess uh i i don't know whether i ever clammed up completely i, I think there have been moments when i've uh, i've sort of played for time and i've filled up 
by saying something else because I couldn't work out who got the ball or who'd done this or who'd done that. Um, but that was all part of the part of the gig, really, knowing how to um, <laughs> delay the final uh, comment if you if you felt you could get there in the end, but you you had a bit, needed a bit of time to see who it really was. I had a lot of moments like that. Yeah. I was going to say, John, were you were you hard on yourself if you made errors and stuff? Oh, yeah, yeah. Des- desperately. I used to watch the video over and over again when I came home and used to p- replay the incident and worry about what I should have said and why I missed what I missed. And, oh, Giles, it was uh, it was difficult that, mm. you know, you, you never did. The problem was you were never going to do the perfect commentary. Mm, no. So, so that you could get as near to it as you could. But you, there was always going to be one little thing that stuck in your mind that wasn't wasn't absolutely perfect. Yeah, I th- yeah, I, I must admit I was self critical Yeah, I was. Yeah, to the point where it became a bit of an obsession, Jim. Really. Did Did that ever get any? Did you ever get uh, less self critical? Did it ever get any easier? Uh, I don't know about that. I think I, I probably I, by the time I got to the end, I'd made every mistake it was possible to make. So I was thinking it can't get much worse. Um, no, I don't think so. I don't think it would ever e- e- easier um, because of the reasons I've told you, because the game got more complicated. Mm. I mean, we haven't even mentioned VAR and the <laughs> referees and how and how that gave commentators another hurdle to, yeah. to climb. Um, but uh, no, it, it, I, I just... I just went went on. To, to, I mean, don't forget, I've been doing it for what was it? I think I did it forty seven years on Match of the Day. So by the time I got to the the end, uh, I think I'd experienced most of the things that would happen to a commentator. Well, yeah, it's funny you were saying a minute ago about um, you know you're not sure you analyse and not sure how you be perceived. And but I guess at some point you must have realised that you were a very well loved part of people's match day experience. I mean, you were voted. Britain's favourite commentator, I think, around sort of 2000. When was the moment where you sort of realised, actually, people really do like what I do? And I guess in a way you're sort of maybe becoming the first football commentary celebrity? Well, I don't know about that. I, I think they did a scientific test once and decided that I had the best voice. Right, yeah. And it was very mathematical how they showed it on, in the newspaper. But um, no, it was only when I finished, really, that I, I began to realise how much... Um, affection certain people still held for me and, and, and I'm still going through that now really um, not at the time I was commentating I didn't think of myself in that capacity I, I just felt I was a guy doing doing a job and hopefully doing it to the best of my ability yeah well clearly you were but I think you, you become part of people's match day experience I think you know people oh, people that's... hold foot, their football Saturdays in such you know for a lot of people it's the highlight of their week after a working week and then you know you are part of that so you end up sort of being I guess part of their lives really this ritual of their sort of Saturday life well <laughs> there are other commentators you know, <laughs> but uh, yeah I, I, thank you very much I take that as a compliment maybe maybe there it, because my voice has been there for so many years, often people come up to me now and say, oh, I grew up with your mm-hmm. voice, which is very, it, it's a big compliment, and I take it as such. Um, but I don't take it for granted, obviously. Do you, do you miss it, John? I mean, obviously you've been away from the game uh, for a few years now. but Yes, I have. Um, no, I don't, I don't miss what went with it. I, I don't miss the travelling. Mm-hmm. I don't miss the, the hours and hours of poring over stats and, 
doing my chart and all that. But I, I think sometimes I miss the excitement of actually getting up on the gantry mm. and letting my feelings out that yeah. way. Uh, certainly in, in Euro 2021, you know, I'd, I'd very much like to have been doing the England games, but of course <laughs> that wasn't possible and it would have taken an awful lot of time to have prepared for them if it was. And I, I mean, a big question is, do you still have a sheepskin coat? Do I still have a sheepskin coat? I still have the nearest thing to it. <laughs> I, even then, even now, I tried to get one made a couple of years ago, just as a, almost a souvenir. And I've got a coat that looks a bit like the sheepskin, but it's never quite the original uh, dark brown. Um, the, the originals that I had in, in the years when I was commentating, I'm afraid they've been either consigned to the dustbin or, or to a, or, or rather given to a, well, a, a worthwhile charity. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, that's very nice. I've done that a few now, times. Now, John, you brought it up, but VAR, how are your feelings about VAR in general? Do you think it's being, do you think it's, I mean, obviously we're only one game into this new season. I think it was, mm. work, it worked much better in the Euros. Mm-hmm. Yes, it did. And I think there's an attempt now by the referees to soften their stance on certain mm. things like the offside and the handball. Uh, but I was never in favour of it. I think the referee... He's there to referee the game, and I would rather have the referee's decision, be it good or bad, uh, as the guiding. He's got two assistants, or three, counting mm-hmm. the fourth official. Um, I never thought it didn't sit well with me, bearing in mind, of course, I go back a long time, but it didn't sit well with me when there was an incident, and it had to be referred to and effectively re-refereed by a guy 100 yeah, miles yeah. away. That, that, for me, never worked. So, no, I was never in favour of VAR. I am in favour of the amendments that seem to have been made for this season. And clearly, the offside was a, was a real pain in the neck. Well, it wasn't a pain in the neck. It was a pain in the big toe, if that <laughs> yeah. player was, was alleged. Or um, the armpit. You know, yeah. With the armpit, yeah, last season. Was a, was a, it, there were one or two farcical situations. Yeah. And I'm glad they've taken steps to remedy those. Uh, I'm not too sure about the thickness of the line on the pitch. Yeah. There was a chap who worked in the, well, almost the boss of referees at the FA called Philip Don many years ago. And he said, the answer to this dilemma of offside is, is easy. He said, it's daylight. Yeah. Is there daylight yeah. between the defender and the attacker? And I still think it's oversimplification, but that's really what they're trying to achieve with these lines. Um, and it, But for some reason, that te- technology seemed to come in and rather overtake the the, the simplicity and the common sense that we, we got used to referees exercising. Yeah, I think they are trying to bring daylight or something as close as possible to it this season, I guess. But I know it's harder, the, the, the line, the thick lines on the pitch. But I guess like over the years, you must have seen multiple sort of changes to the game. I'm trying to think like the back pass rule, I guess, and mm. more substitutes yeah. and stuff. So I guess, yeah. Names, names and names on shirts. Yeah. Sponsors. Uh, uh, sponsorship, which, which hardly existed when I took over in the 70s. And I always remember going to a game at Sheffield United at Bramall Lane. And um, there was a guy there. I always remembered his name. Harold Rumsey, his name was. And he was the commercial manager of Sheffield United. And he came up to me at lunchtime that day. I'd just done a piece for Football Focus. And he said, while you're here, John, would you like to see our new restaurant? (laughs) And I said, well, hang on a minute. I've I've got to stay at the ground now. I said, I've got to game on at three o'clock i haven't got time to go into the city center now he said no no no, it's not on the city center it's in the ground 
And that, that was one of the first times, you know, Arsenal was one of the first that had a little restaurant in the corner of the stand. Mm. Um, and then, of course, it mushroomed, didn't it? The, the sponsors uh, came in in big numbers. The names were on the shirts. Um, and they were um, drawing people into the ground to, to, to sort of come and be, have a you know, posh lunch and all the rest of it before going out to watch the match. And then executive boxes mm -hmm. came in. Yeah. And, yeah, that, that was the side of the game, I think, that changed the most. If we went back to the 70s now, the grounds would look almost feudal, yeah. wouldn't they? Yeah. Do you think all those changes were, were good? Do you, do you, or do you remember at the time thinking, oh, this is going a bit, bit far or a bit weird? It's the march of time, Giles, isn't it? I mean, it, it, it just go, comes and uh, whatever you do, you can't stop progress. And uh, most of the things I've seen in football have, have, have been in the long term for the better of the game. Um, and, and, and really, it, 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 all right, it's about money. We know that. And, and wages have rocketed and transfer fees have exploded. And there have been all sorts of things that are different. Um, but it's still a great game. And I'm I'm still going to go to football even even now I've I've finished commentating. Yeah, because the stat, stat obviously like there's loads more stats now. But was it right that at oh. one point you were told when you were youngest that you're doing too yeah. many stats during games? I was ahead of ahead of your I time. Was. Too many facts and figures, they said to me. But look at the number now that come and get churned out, not just by commentators, but in the newspapers and everywhere, and, and obscure ones at that which I would never have used. You know, like I was the thirteenth time he'd scored with his left foot. And things <laughs> yeah. like that. You know, you you can look at them now and think, is that really important? But anyway, it, again, it's the march of time. Yeah. Oh, it's been so joyous talking to you, John. Thank yeah, you thank so you. much. Yeah, thank you, John. It's been honestly, yeah, and and yes, you, I'm one of those people that grew up listening to you commentating Same. on on matches, and um, yeah, miss hearing your voice on 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 match of the day. So, yeah, thank you, thank you for Thanks. many. Um, happy memories. Well, I'm sorry I haven't come up with anything <laughs> extraordinary, but I, I mean, I can only tell you how it's been, really, can't I? Um, so, you know, I, I, I've enjoyed every minute of it. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to talk no, about been... it, Giles and you, Jim. No, it's thank been great, John. Thank you. So Fascinating much. career and, um, yeah, wonderful memories. Thank you. The one and only John Watson. I almost can't quite believe actually we just chatted to him, but mm. an absolute icon in the footballing world for the last half a century yeah. uh, on the Blank Podcast. What a lovely guy. Some fantastic stories, some great memories delving into the memory bank there and some lovely advice as well about when things aren't quite going so right. So really perfect episode there. And, and we really, really appreciate John's time and John's family who helped us set up all the tech for it as well and, yeah. and get this interview going. And we believe that might have been... Uh, John's first ever podcast, I think. I think it is John's first podcast. Well, he certainly sort of mentioned that when we started recording. So, and um, yeah, he said he didn't want, you know, he was a little bit nervous as well starting. So I'm glad we were able to um, guide him through this first experience and it was okay for him. And I think he seemed to enjoy it. So it was nice. And uh, yeah, what a, what a great, great person. And uh, yeah, just, yeah, feels a bit surreal having just ch talked to John, you know, this person that's been so iconic in our, in our lives, our footballing lives. 
And um, yeah, it's funny when you you actually get to chat to these these amazing people that you know. This is the great thing about doing this podcast is you know yeah. never got you know there's every, you know everyone that says yes to coming on. I'm always like, oh my god, this is amazing. We're going to yeah. talk to this person. So yeah, it's just uh, especially especially when it's someone who's obviously had a career in broadcasting, so it's a voice you've heard yeah so many times because it's just it's just his voice. You know, it's not something he's practiced it's just his voice but obviously you're then hearing it sort of in person it's a very exciting and sort of surreal moment really i guess yeah absolutely um, yeah yeah and you know he's yeah and i guess also putting the boot on the other foot to some extent you know he's he's not used to being on the other end of the camera yeah. on, on the microphone no being asked yeah. the question so yeah I, that, that was nice as well but yeah a, a great episode really enjoyed it and i um, hope everyone else enjoys it as much as we did recording it indeed so thank you john so much for your time i mean i would do the twitter handle here to remind people how to get in contact but i mean um did it at the top didn't i so but should we do it again anyway just for kind of you know well why don't we talk, tell people about our amazing patreon instead <gasps> of course where you can actually get added extra content with john so we exactly. asked him a couple of questions at the end uh which were very interesting a couple of very interesting stories cropped mm. up as well so if you've enjoyed this but you want to hear more from motty then oh that sounds like a podcast doesn't it more, <laughs> more from motty um then please just sign up to our patron where you can get extra content with all our all our fantastic guests um at patreon.com forward slash blank podcast which is p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash blank podcast uh, i would 100 percent recommend it yeah and if you're feeling particularly generous with your time and money this week you can also buy our book which is in all good bookshops and online it's called blank how to oh no what is it called <laughs> <laughs> and there you go it's a blank moment how why to it's fine and fail why yeah, it's why fine, fine to fall to and fail and how to pick yourself up again Perfect. Uh, that is the perfect sorry, promo for the book. Sorry, quadrille. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, Selena. <laughs> but that's um, that's the there you go. That's the perfect way to promote the book. Yeah, please do. Our book, of mm. course, is a sort of an extension of the podcast and delves into a lot of the subjects that came out today and that come up with all our guests. So yeah, yeah. please do buy a copy if you enjoy the pod. We would uh, hugely appreciate it. Mm, we would. I believe that's it, Charles. That's the end of the podcast. Yeah. Only was well, the end of this episode. Sorry, this episode. That sounded very long. This is the end of the podcast. <laughs> Imagine if that's how we went out. We're just yeah. like, suddenly we're like, okay, bye. Bye. Um, no, it's the end of this week. We will, of course, be back with more episodes. Of so this is episode 10,000, and it's the end of the podcast. <laughs> at what point do you... It's a question for another day, but at what point when you've done a podcast for loads, say you do get to 1,000 episodes, do, mm. do you at that point be like, do you know what? That's enough. That's enough. I don't know, mate. I don't know. I mean, it would take us a while to get to a thousand. That'd be ten years' time, probably. <laughs> Actually, by then we'll probably be like there won't be anyone else to what? talk to. You were like, I'm sick of Jim's fate. Yeah, we've run out of people to talk to. Well, the, unfortunately, your room, the room behind you, will be so full of um, football shirts oh, that you won't I'm be able to get, in. get into it. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead and stop the podcast because Jim has turned into a football yeah. shop. So yeah, yeah. Uh, who knows? Well. We'll see what happens in 10 years' time. But thankfully, you won't have to wait 10 years for the next episode. It is one week away. So we're back next week with another episode. Tuesday on the public feed. Monday, if you are a patron subscriber as well. So, uh, But until then, have a great week. Charles, have a good one. And you, Jim. Take care and look after Goodbye. yourself. <laughs> Bye.
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. This is a Glass Box Media Podcast.